The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Breaking news overnight. Israel has ordered more than a million people in northern Gaza to evacuate the region in less than 24 hours. The unprecedented warning came in just before midnight last night. The United Nations says that is impossible without devastating humanitarian consequences. Hamas responded by telling civilians to stay put. Well, tomorrow marks one week since the horror of this war unfolded, and this new evacuation order could signal a ground invasion by Israel is coming. U.S. is vowing to stand by Israel as its war with Hamas intensifies. Secretary of State Antony Blinken stood by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in a show of solidarity in Israel earlier today. Here in Israel and everywhere, we will reaffirm the crystal clear warning that President Biden issued yesterday to any adversary, state or non-state, thinking of taking advantage of the current crisis to attack Israel. Don't. The United States has Israel's back. The secretary confirmed today that the first tranche of U.S. aid to Israel had already arrived. He noted that U.S. and Israeli officials are speaking virtually every hour as this crisis unfolds. Uh, among the materiel already sent to Israel are ammunition interceptors to replenish its Iron Dome, which we know it's used heavily, plus artillery shells and other munitions. Uh, on the deterrence front, as we know, the U.S. has moved a carrier strike group into the eastern Mediterranean in order to warn other actors not to engage and to take advantage of the turmoil unfolding there. Beyond military support, the U.S. has been offering expert hostage negotiators from across the government. It surged intelligence support. And then there's, of course, expected to be overwhelmingly bipartisan support in Congress as well for additional aid packages to be sent. They're expected to total in the billions and to be approved in the coming days and weeks. The oil market is fraught with uncertainty. That's proving true as crude pops 5% today now after the U.S. imposed more sanctions on tankers carrying Russian crude, saying two companies have violated that $60 price cap. We already had a tight oil market to begin with. Obviously, what's been hanging over it is the, is the threat of a slower economic growth, downturn, higher interest rates. But I think the, right now what you have is just more geopolitical risk going into the price of oil, volatility. And as you noted, the U.S. government finally saying it has to you know, crack down and actually demonstrate that sanctions are really going to work if for exceeding the $60 price cap on Russian oil. So you have two theaters of conflict, Ukraine and the Middle East at the same time. But it really will depend. There's still the unanswered question about what was Iran's role in this uh, whole event uh, and how much did they actually directly support it. So I think at this point, oil generally continues to keep flowing, but there's going to be the next few weeks are going to be very volatile. And if we have escalating violence, then there will be more questions about the flow. But one thing to be said, you know, we're, we're coming up next week to the 50th anniversary of the oil embargo of 1973. Israel has made the decision that for about 20 years they've learned to live with Hamas on its border, as awful as that was, and that they basically had skirmishes every couple of years, 2008, 2009, 2014, May 2021. You know, rockets would be fired, Israel would respond from the air, sometimes use special forces, things would quiet down and everyone would go back to business. That doctrine is over. Israel, after this weekend, is basically saying we can no longer, we, you know, Israel left Gaza in 2005. Hamas took over in Gaza in 2007. Israel says we've tried being out of Gaza for the last couple of decades and just trying to manage Hamas's, you know, coexistence there. 
it's not practical anymore. And so the Israeli leadership's view is Hamas's political leadership needs to be wiped out and their military capabilities need to be wiped out. And to your point, what that looks like, the next few weeks will be pretty bad. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Stocks ended the day mixed, and they also ended the week as well, as the horrific events of last weekend weighed on the market. The big winners this week were oil, gold, and bonds. Oil prices shot up Friday to close out the session at 87.68, working their way back up to $90, as fears grow that a widening war in the Middle East could drive crude prices higher as oil inventories are at record lows. Gold prices shot up Friday $66 to close out the week in 1932, and silver jumped 92 cents an ounce to finish out the week at 22.72. Meanwhile, in the bond market, the yield on the 10-year note and the 30-year bond backed off from the 5% level, ending out the session at 4.6 and 4 and 3 quarters. Growing fears of a war and rising oil prices are bringing back recession probabilities. Even though banks have been reporting higher profits, they are warning things are going to get rough going forward. Hi everyone, I'm Jim Poplava and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Up on deck, Bullseye Craig Johnson joins me. Craig has a positive outlook on the market, sticking to a S&P 500, closing out the year at 1825. That would be a gain of 10% from here. He likes techs, industrials, and services. Later on, Doomberg will be here as we discuss the coming energy problems and a green transition. But first, let's find out the events moving the market this week with Ryan Poplava. It was a week of geopolitical risks, rising inflationary concerns, and the beginning of the third quarter earnings season that led to a relatively flat week in stocks. The S&P 500 closed up 0.45%, the Nasdaq closed down 0.18%, and the Dow Industrials closed up 0.79%. Because of the geopolitical events, West Texas crude rose $4.90, gold rose $96.3 an ounce, and the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield fell to 4.62%, and the U.S. dollar rose to 106.67 in a flight to safety, the theme for this week. The stock market opened down Monday on the news that Israel declared war on Hamas following a surprise attack launched by Hamas over the weekend, killing hundreds. After the open, stocks rallied Monday and the Tuesday, continuing the rally last week as rates fell, oil fell, and due to oversold conditions. Continued geopolitical uncertainty surrounding Israel and the Gaza Strip kept the bulls at bay in addition to new inflationary data this week. The producer price index was reported on Wednesday with a headline figure up half a percent month over month for September, while core PPI was up 0.3%. The increase in energy played a large part, pushing up the headline figure up 2.2% year over year versus 1.6% in August, reversing the trend of disinflation up until now. The consumer price index on Thursday showed an unchanged figure of 3.7% year over year for the headline number, including energy and food while the core consumer price index dropped to 4.1% versus 4.3% in August. Both inflation reports failed to squash inflationary concerns about future hikes. What's interesting is that seven Fed officials in two weeks have said they think higher interest rates may have helped to finish the Fed's job to tighten monetary conditions. 
This week, Logan said higher yields may mean less need to raise rates on Monday. Bostic Tuesday said, I actually don't think we need to increase rates anymore, that our policy rate is at a sufficiently restrictive position to get inflation down to 2%. Daily said, a rise in bond yields may substitute for a rate hike. Wednesday, Kashkari said it is possible that further rate hikes may not be required, and Waller said higher market interest rates may help the Fed slow inflation with price data seeming to now be moving back towards the Fed's 2% inflation. I think with the Fed now talking down policy, you have to watch the US dollar to see what traders will do, as well as watch what happens to interest rates and the long bond, which is 20 to 30 year maturities. The US Treasury yield climbed 12 basis points to 4.71% following the CPI data Thursday before yields fell on Friday's news. Israel warned 1.1 million residents to evacuate the northern Gaza Strip, which was followed by Iran's warning Israel will face reactions in other areas if they invade. In other economic data, initial jobless claims were unchanged at 209,000 for the prior week. The preliminary University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey showed a pickup in inflation expectations over the next year to 3.8% from 3.2% and long-run inflation up to 3% from 2.8%, helping to boost yields off their lows Friday. In earnings, Pepsi, United Health, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo were standout winners this week post their earnings and or guidance announcements, which helped the Dow Industrials to outperform. Also in this week, Exxon announced a $59.5 billion all-stock acquisition of Pioneer Natural Resources on Wednesday. With energy prices rising yet again this week, the energy sector was the clear winner of 4.5%, while the utility sector was a close second up 3.6%, followed by real estate up 2.3%. As traders agree on the prospects, rates may have peaked short-term as investors flock to buy the safety trade, which is the dollar treasuries, and gold. Consumer discretionary sector was down 1% and materials were down 0.4%. Those were the only two sectors down the week. That summarizes this week's financial news as geopolitical risks rise, inflation concerns also rise as energy prices rise, and the earnings season kicks off. There will be more earnings reports next week, but the bulk of reports won't hit until another week or two. Up next, this week's guest technician, Craig Bullseye-Johnson. I want to tease this conversation up for our listeners just to get an idea of where we're headed. And I want to quote something that you wrote recently. You say, it is meaningless to compare Chinese and U.S. GDP. They mean very different things. That is also why I think the whole purchasing power parity comparison produced by the World Bank is drivel. So we're going to get to that as we proceed through the conversation. But let's start with what's the problem here with GDP? In an economy that operates under substantial soft budget constraints, almost by definition, you cannot compare it to a, an, an economy that operates under hard budget constraints. And that's because while every economy engages in non-productive activity, there is an automatic mechanism in a, you know, in the United States, in Germany, in Brazil, that eliminates that non-productive activity in the form of bankruptcy, right? You, you you just can't keep doing it for very long. Eventually, fairly quickly, you get closed down and everything gets written down and you erase everything that you added to GDP. 
And it's important because you added it to GDP, but you didn't add it to the real value of the goods and services produced by the economy. So you're starting to distort the relationship. And the argument is that you do distort the relationship, but only for a very short period of time, and then you undistort it. So that's why we can continue to use GDP in the face of non-economic behavior, non-productive behavior that is added to the GDP measure. But if a significant portion of the economy operates under soft budget constraints, then there is no automatic correction mechanism for non-productive behavior. And as we know, in China, we have a significant part of the economy operating under soft budget constraints. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, our firm specializes in assisting companies by managing cash balances with short-term treasuries and high-quality corporate bonds that may provide higher interest rates. This approach not only helps to manage your corporate cash balances with competitive yields, but also to help reduce taxes through the use of treasury securities, which are exempt from state and local income taxes. Give us a call today at 888-486-3939 to find out how we can assist you to earn higher interest rates with no bank risk and no state and local income taxes. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, just when you think things are stabilizing, geopolitical events erupt on the scene. What will this mean for the market going forward? Well, let's find out. Joining us on the program is Craig Johnson from Piper Sandler, also known as Bullseye Craig. Last time we talked, you still expected an upward turn in the market to finish out the year. Are you still holding to that, given the events of last week? Thanks for having me back on, Jim. The answer is uh, yes. I am still sticking with our year-end objective of 48.25. I still think that that is a, an achievable objective, despite the uh, uh, the horrific turn of events we've seen in the Middle East uh, You know, over the weekend. Um, again, I think at this point in time that... They are horrific events that have occurred in the Middle East. I don't think you can put it in any other way, shape, or form. Uh, but at the end of the day, markets have really pretty well uh, absorbed that negative news and have actually held up pretty well. Um, from I guess from my perspective, what I'll be watching on the broader market, Jim, is I'm going to be watching that 4,200 level, which we just rallied off of. We had gotten really oversold. And we started to rally off of that. I'll be looking for a breath improvement to start to play out. And then also, Jim, I'll be watching 10-year bond yields. And I'll be watching the dollar to sort of navigate how this conflict is, is playing out and what sort of impact is going to be having on the macro factors of the market. I'd also say that you know, one of the lines that I've heard from a good friend of mine is one doesn't get hurt falling out of a basement window. And given how negative the sentiment is and given how beaten up the markets had gotten, it sort of feels like that kind of applies at this point in time uh, from our perspective. So we saw bond yields, especially the TAN and the the uh, 30-year approach 5%. We have now seen Fed governors coming out saying, well, with bond yields rising on the long end, perhaps we don't need to raise interest rates uh, again this year. What's your take on where rates are going from here? And will the Fed hold off in your opinion? 
Well, I mean, if I look at the odds of what's happening right now, um, if I just look out at the probability of another 25 basis point rate increase at the November meeting, we're at about a 12% probability right now. So that feels like they'll probably push it out uh, from my perspective. If I look at where we're at in terms of the December meeting, uh, you're at about a 29% probability. So again, Jim, I sort of look at these odds and I would say, the odds don't seem to favor that there's another rate increase coming. They may stay in a position of keeping rates higher for longer, but perhaps another rate increase might not be in the cards. At least that's what the probabilities of the market would say. And then, Jim, taking that to just a little bit further of a point, um, from the last hike to the first cut has usually taken about 8.2 months. And again, Many different scenarios throughout history are there to play out. But if you just look at the statistical averages throughout time, I would tell you that the market is higher, uh, about almost 13% from that last hike to the first cut. I think that bodes fairly well uh, for our sort of year-end objective, Jim, if that is to be the case. And if if we do miss, I would say that maybe it happens in the first quarter, maybe not at year-end, if, if that is to play out that way. I want to move on to oil, which has been a contributing factor to inflation. We really saw oil take off this summer. Uh, WTI got up into the 90s with Brent. Now we've seen that pull back and surprisingly pulled back even despite what happened over the weekend. What's your take on oil here? Where do you see it going? Well, when you look at some of the production numbers that I had seen come out uh, across the tape earlier today, I mean, the U.S. is uh, producing uh, at a very rapid pace at this point in time. And if I was to not know what's happening in the world on the geopolitical front, uh, you look at that chart of crude oil and you, you're like, wow, we just broke the upper trending channel that's been intact since about the May-June timeframe of this year. We had a rally back up. We couldn't get back into that channel. And you'd say that would be your perfect opportunity to be short oil. Again, not knowing anything else happening in the world. I think what is happening, uh, you know, Jim, post the weekend, oil initially surged on the concerns about what was happening in the Middle East. And at this point in time, it doesn't look like this conflict has led to any sort of major uh, countries coming offline in the Middle East. I think a lot of people, and this is what I hear from our oil experts here at Piper, is that it, unless Iran's oil comes offline or other producing nations' oil comes offline, I think things are sort of status quo for now, and and um, the oil price should settle down and sort of drift back lower in here. But again, the risk is the conflict expands, oil comes offline, that oil price is going to go up pretty quickly. I want to talk about the economy because last year, the first two quarters of the year were negative. Everybody thought we were going into recession. The economy turns around, job numbers go up, and then all of a sudden, no recession. Now, some people are talking, well, it's just been postponed because of all the government spending and everything else. What's your take at Piper on a possibility of a recession? Because you know, if you would have told me, Craig, we would have gone from zero to 5% on the Fed funds rate with no effect or impact on the economy, or we wouldn't be in a recession, I would have told you you're crazy, but that's exactly what happened. You know, our economists still believe that we are going to get a recession. Could happen here in Q4 or perhaps in, in Q1 of next year. Uh, there's no question that 
that recession sort of forecast has been consistently kind of pushed out to happening. Uh, there's been so much stimulus that has come in from Washington uh, to support various functions and just uh, various programs that I think that is sort of what has pushed things out, Jim. If you just look at the numbers the way they are now, uh, we are seeing the inflation numbers sort of coming down. Things seem to be kind of coming off of boil. You look at what you have happening with the jobs market. We are seeing people getting hired, people coming back into the workforce, sort of bringing that unemployment rate up as people are rejoining the workforce. A lot of good things are happening. It's not all bad when it comes to the economic front. Consumers still seem to be spending because there's not as many layoffs happening at this point in time. And we're just sort of absorbing more workers coming into the workforce. Um, Those are all good things, Jim, from that perspective. Also, if I look at the earnings front, since we're just entering the Q3 earnings season, I look at 2024 over 2023 earnings, and we're still looking at about 11 or 12%, call it low double digit type earnings number growth year over year. That still seems quite constructive. Flip it around due to the geopolitical concerns, Middle East, what you're seeing in Ukraine, what we're seeing around the world at this point in time, everybody's very nervous. You're kind of climbing that proverbial wall of worry at this point in time. But when you just come back and look at the numbers and try to separate some of these headline risks out there to what you actually see happening with stocks, what you see happening with the economy, what you see happening with earnings. Wow, they're two different pictures. And from my perspective, if I just sort of follow the trends, which we're supposed to do, it still looks to me like this is a market that can work and can work well into year end. You know what surprised me? The Wall Street Journal did an article this week and they were talking about the baby boomers who are, you know, I think have a net worth of over $70 trillion dollars. But for the first time, these boomers are getting decent returns on their cash. And so that's fueling spending like travel purchases. And so that they're saying is basically a stimulus that is reflected in some of the things we're seeing in retail and travel. Any thoughts on that? I think that's exactly what's happening. If I look at what we have out there in money market funds, at this point in time, you're looking at $4 trillion plus in money market funds sitting out there, Jim. So there's lots of cash out there on the sidelines earning decent returns. And I think the other thing too is if you've got a mortgage on a house, you're locked in at a 30-year fixed mortgage, why would you pay it off right now? Why wouldn't you just uh, slow down the extra payments, stack that up into a an account where you can go and buy treasuries or some sort of an equivalent where you can get a decent dividend yield and simply let that continue to sort of build. And why pay it off any sooner than you have to if you're fortunate enough to be locked in? So that cash out there, I think, Jim, is quite helpful. And I think that's helping uh, people feel better, even though the economy is getting a little bit more challenging. There's more noise out of Washington and those kind of things. But the cash is there. People, I think, have set up reserves to sort of offset um, future payments of things, and they're earning money while they do it. You know, this applies also to companies as well as individuals, because, Craig, who didn't refinance their home in the last decade when you got 3% mortgages? Corporations refinance their debt. So once again, another story in the journal talking about corporations have refinanced their debt, so they've locked in lower uh, rates on their debt. And at the same time, with lots of cash, they're now getting over 5% on that cash in treasuries. And Jim, don't forget about the country of uh, Austria. Remember, they floated 100-year paper 
a year oh, or so. Yeah. And they were, I think it was like 1% in change paper. They floated it for 100 years. It was snapped up very, very quickly. Everybody was playing the bullet trade uh, on that paper uh, years ago. And talk about a country that's going to be in a great position, uh, having brought in all that capital for the next 100 years. That's uh, that's terrific. But I think a lot of people have already done that, Jim. And I think if people have been fortunate enough to have been paying attention to their personal finances, which I hope everybody listening here on the show has been doing, they should be in a pretty good position locked in at a 30-year fixed mortgage at a three and change percent. That That's... Uh, Really setting things up very nicely for people going forward if they've if they made that decision a couple of years ago. So I'm looking, Craig, at the individual sectors in the S and P. You've got some standouts. You know, energy has been a standout, and once again, technology. In your opinion, if you had to deploy money in this kind of market, given your year-end target of forty-eight twenty-five. What do you think is going to lead that S&P to 48.25? Are we back to the Magnificent Seven, or are we going to see a wider range of sectors that participate this time? Well, Jim, that's an absolutely terrific question. And when I go through and I look at my total return, relative strength work, like we always do in our, our trend work that we do, you know, I had this question just earlier today from folks. If I go through and I look at on a unweighted or a purely equally weighted basis, industrial services, transportation have been the three best performing. If I look at it on a market cap weighted, it's been technology, communications, media, and the consumer cyclicals on a market cap weighted basis. So where our recommendations have been, and I think are correctly positioned into year end, is to be overweight, technology, maybe down cap a little bit more, and then also to be overweight services, and then also to be overweight the industrials. And again, down cap a little bit more for those. So from my perspective, that's the three best areas to be overweight. Uh, Where we think we should be underweight, uh, utilities, consumer staples, are our underweights at this point in time. We also have the communication media on an unweighted basis uh, as a uh, as an underweight also. So again, trying to take into consideration the relative strength trends, but also definitely taking into consideration cap levels on those recommendations too, Jim, is where I think we should be sort of positioned into year end. So right now, everybody's gleefully happy. You're getting over 5% in T-bills, but we know if the economy weakens, in maybe the likelihood of maybe a, a recession next year, who knows, fourth quarter, first quarter, second quarter, whatever occurs, rates are likely to come down. So, you know, the, the 5% may not last. Would you be extending duration on uh, bonds here at this point, or would you wait? I think I would wait a little bit. And one of the things that I guess I would sort of point out to people too is, Jim, when we come back and we look at some of the similarities of this market, and we specifically think about the secular inflection point on the 10-year bond yield here in the U.S., as I look at that secular inflection point, we know that it looks the mere opposite of what happened in 1981 to about 1984. And what I suspect is going to happen is that we're going to see 10-year bond yields, I think, probably has already happened. We've made sort of a double top in the short term, short to intermediate term, and we're going to see those rates come back down. And as they come back down, we'll want to understand why they're coming back down, but I think they'll come back down and you'll probably see 10-year bond yields over the next quarter or two probably come down to somewhere in the range of about 3.5% would be my guess. 
It could be even lower. If you're a true technician, you would say it could even be lower than that. But let's just make friends here on the show and talk about three and a half percent. If that happens, I think that's going to be a big catalyst for equities over the uh, intermediate term. But don't be fooled by that coming back down. That is just a correction in the context of a long-term secular change of rates. And when I mean long-term, folks, we're talking multiple years here. It took from 81 to about 84 to really confirm that you made a lower high back there in 84. It's going to take multiple years again for that to play out. But trying to right-size it to a time frame that all the listeners care about here, look for rates to come back down over the next couple quarters. Then you're going to see a higher low get made, and that's going to be the start of the next sort of sustainable leg up for, for rates. That's what we need to be watching for in the next coming couple quarters, Jim. Do you see, Craig, an environment very similar to the 70s? You know, we, we got off gold backing for the dollar. Deficits began to rise. The Fed would raise. They would lower. We had multiple bull and bear markets of shorter duration throughout the decade. But the S&P virtually went nowhere from 66 to 82. Could we repeat that pattern? I don't know if that's going to be a market that ends up going nowhere. I still think the market can still work. I think parts of it will still work. The innovation, the growth in the United States is still here to come out and play, uh, to be long this in this gym. But I think this is going to be an environment where you're really going to want to uh, work very closely with advisors. Um, and this is going to be a much more active environment than what I think people have seen in the past. And um I think people are going to have to be more nimble. They're going to have to be more active than they've been. And I think that's where the advisors um, are going to come into play and really steer clients in the right direction to navigate these changes. Jim, we haven't seen a secular change of interest rates in 40 plus years. And before that, it was almost 40 years before that. So these turning points are big, huge events that are taking place. And when you start walking through the ramifications of it all, it probably means that stocks are going to look more expensive, but yet they can still work. And it's going to sort of change the dynamics, a lot of the quantitative models out there too. So we are going to get more volatility, but that volatility is going to be navigatable. It's just going to be uh, probably more volatility than people have been used to seeing over the last, say, 20 years or so. And you hit upon something that I think is real critical for investors to understand. And I just think of what has happened to investors in TLT. They got crushed last year. Everybody went long TLT this year, thinking that rates were coming down. That's not what happened. They've lost money, double digits. And you're, you're talking about a longer term secular trend. And we've been so accustomed to rates falling over a 40-year period what you're saying now, this cycle is going to be going in the opposite direction. So you better beware, more diligent, or if you're buying individual bonds, maybe keep shorter maturities against rising rates. Yes, I would agree with you on that. But also keep in mind too, Jim, that if you look back to the period where rates really started rising coming out of the 1940s into the 1950s, you had a pretty good decade there. I mean, rates went up, but they were not at a problematic level. Keep in mind that the average 10-year bond yield going back over the last century has been about 5.5%. I mean, we're not there. So equities can certainly work. It's not until you get to rates, if we do get there, that'll be years down the road that will be problematic for equities. But right now, it's, it's manageable. Equities can work. And in a more inflationary type environment, I think equities can do well. 
And so, Craig, given where we are right now, and we still have some uncertainty, the ground war hasn't begun over there. Who knows what's going to, how this is going to play out? Uh, would you be standing on the sidelines waiting for key things, as you mentioned, the 4,200 level, the 10 year bond yields, and the dollar? Well, Jim, I'm going to use history here as a little bit of a guide. And what I would say to people is, when you go back and you look at prior conflicts in history, and that's not to, to minimize these conflicts and the loss of life or property, those are all horrific scenarios. But if you just sort of go back and look at those events, look at the market returns during these conflict periods, you look out 4, 13, 26 weeks later, more often than not, Jim, equity markets have responded and have they've gone higher. And that's what I'm trying to keep people to keep squarely focused in their mind is that equity markets, historically, these conflicts have been short-lived. And again, look forward 14, 13, 26 weeks later, and the market has been higher. I'll be watching those. I'll also keep my eye on the dollar. I'll keep my eye on oil rates. And uh, I'll keep my eye on um, certainly the 10-year bond yields. But again, just trying to put it all into perspective, Jim. I can think back to when we're on the show uh, right after the conflict had started in Ukraine. Again, another tragic event here in history and lives have been lost and it's tragic. But you come back and you look at equity markets and you know they were able to still do okay. Um, maybe not great, but they've certainly done okay and better than I think a lot of people would have uh, hoped. So it's just that perspective, Jim, to try to put into to play here for these conflicts. One final question, if I may, assuming that Washington finally gets some kind of budget for the next 12 months, that budget, if adopted, Craig, is going to have probably another half a trillion of stimulus in it. And we're entering a presidential election cycle. Just from a cycle point of view, what does the fourth year of a presidential cycle look like? Well, I mean, the fourth year of a presidential cycle, I had gotten the question from some investors, like, what does the volatility typically look like in the fourth year of a, uh, a presidential term? And I actually found that the volatility was actually somewhat less uh, in the fourth year of a presidential term. But as I look out to all presidential terms, you know, the third year is usually the strongest. Um, but from our perspective, I think it can be a decent year for the uh, for the fourth year coming up. But again, third year has typically been among the stronger as they try to get stimulus ready. I'd also remind the listeners too that we haven't, only twice have we had a recession before a presidential uh, vote or election has taken place. That was 1980 and 2020. Those are very big turnover years in terms of politicians in the White House. I think that's something else that has to be taken into consideration. If we already get the recession, like some of the economists, Jim, that are talking about, uh, that would mean a very big change in the makeup and the constituents that are in Washington today. So, Craig, you're sticking to your year-end forecast of 48.25, which would apply a little over a 10% gain going into the end of the year. Correct. We still think that as we see 10-year bond yields start to come down, we think that will be the catalyst that will move markets higher. We've now gotten through the CPI report that we've had here. We've gotten through the PPI report. We've gotten through some of these different pieces. We're working our way into third quarter earnings. And if these third quarter earnings hold up or even look a little bit stronger than what uh, we're seeing out there with the consensus right now, I think those will be the catalyst, Jim, that can move this market up. Because keep in mind that where we're trading at right now, we're not at some crazy historical 
sort of valuation metric as we look forward to uh, earnings on the S&P 500. In fact, some of those numbers are where we're trading at right now. There may be a turn or a turn and a half above the historical average, um, you know, about 16 and a half times. So again, this isn't a, a historically expensive market when you go back and you look at it versus history. All right. Well, some good news to end on. We could have a Merry Christmas this year. Craig, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow you, tell them how they can easily do so. Yeah. Anybody that would like to follow our work, we do have sort of a friends and family list. Uh, feel free to reach me at with an email, craig.johnson at psc.com. All right. Well, listen, Craig, if I don't talk to you before the year end, have a nice rest of the year and a happy holiday. You too, Jim. I started Financial Sense in 1985 to give clients a boutique, personal investment experience that's hard to get at a large company. For three decades, my company has been helping families build, manage, and protect their wealth through tailored financial planning and investment management. If you are looking to make financial sense of a complex world, give our office a call at 888 to speak with one of our advisors today and let us help you plan your future. Well, we've seen an uptick in the price of energy, and now we have conflicts in the Middle East, which could impact the price of energy even further. But the biggest issue on the agenda today is climate change, as the elites keep pushing a timetable of 2030. Is it realistic? Well, let's find out. Joining us on the program is Doomberg. And Doomberg, I just wrote a piece on energy transitions, and I was looking at the wood to coal transition took several hundred years, coal to oil took 50 to 70 years. What is it that we are talking about 2030? We're going to do this in 10 years. It just doesn't make any logical sense to me, given what we're doing to try to make that happen. Jim, great to be back. And as you say, I've enjoyed reading your piece. It's just nonsense. I mean, it's just impossible. So we have promised the world the impossible. Nobody's taking any meaningful action to accomplish those tasks. And now what we're seeing, as we also wrote about a couple of weeks ago in a piece we called The Great Backpedaling is Upon Us, we're beginning to see reality being recognized by what we would call the soft left in this environmental debate. And we're beginning to have this reconciliation with reality that uh, we predict will actually cause substantial fireworks on the hard left, the people that believe that climate change is actually an existential threat to humanity and that we need to eliminate fossil fuels post haste and you know that burning wood was in fact the more natural way to power our society. The word natural is key to this religion, of course. And so what we will see and what we have to continue to see is goals that have 2030, which when we're first formulated seemed like a long ways away, will have to be rolled back because it's simply not going to happen. As we both know, we're going to set a record for fossil fuel demand in oil this year, all-time record. We're going to set a record in fossil fuel production and consumption of coal this year. We just saw France today sign a contract for LNG out of Qatar that guarantees a slug of supply for them all the way out to 2050. We've been told a big lie. The big lie is that we can wean ourselves off fossil fuels with no meaningful impact to our standard of living. And it's high time that we come to grips with that lie. And then and not only what it means for our policy, but what it means for the people who told it. I mean, I think some of these liars, let's just call them what they are, have to be held to account. You know, the thing that was really surprising, there's a report out that was put out by the Institute for Energy Research. And despite the increase in renewables, the increase in fossil fuels was three times larger 
than it was in solar and almost two and a half times larger than it was in wind. So we've been hearing peak demand for energy. You know, the IA puts this stuff out and then they have to revise their estimates for fuel consumption and oil consumption upwards. But the demand for fossil fuels, the thing that strikes me, Doomberg, the rest of the world, in my piece, I talked about China has got, what, 55 coal plants. They're building more. India's got coal plants. They're building more. They're building nuclear plants. They're taking an approach to energy saying we're not going to just rely on one method to supply our electricity and energy. We're going to use multiple methods. We're going in the opposite direction. Everything's going to be wind and solar, which we know is intermittent and doesn't work everywhere. So we formulated what we cheekily called uh, Doomberg's postulate, which states that every molecule of fossil fuels produced globally will be burned by somebody somewhere. And local restrictions in that regard merely shift who gets to enjoy the privilege of doing so. And of course, since energy is life and energy you know, the amount of energy you personally get to harvest dictates your standard of living and all humans everywhere want an ever increasing standard of living. It follows that if we produce a bunch of solar in the West, uh, which we have been investing unthinkable sums to do, that may free up some portion of our fossil fuels and somebody else in the world is going to happily burn them. And if it was always going to be added by proactively shutting off energy sources, you are killing people. I mean, if energy is life, the absence of energy is death and nobody wants to die. Everybody wants a better life for their children and for their family and for themselves. And not always in that order, of course. And you've mentioned a few of the big countries, but I might add to your list, uh, Indonesia, Pakistan, Brazil, South Africa, Germany could be added to that list as we head into yet another winter of crisis with the war in the Middle East that you mentioned in your intro. What is Germany doing today? They, they have, they're burning coal to the extent that they're perhaps second only to Poland, the brownest grid in the European Union, despite having spent the most on weather-dependent intermittent renewables. It was always going to be additive. The only way to slow our carbon emissions is to either produce less fossil fuels or implement carbon capture and sequestration alongside the production of fossil fuels. And Europe produces basically no fossil fuels. And neither does you know California and all of these regions that have adopted the climate change renewable mindset. None of these are particularly important when it comes to the production of fossil fuels. And since Doomberg's postulate, which we think is probably graduated to the point of theory at this point, if somebody's going to produce a ton of coal, there's going to be somebody on the planet that will burn it and enjoy the life-nourishing energy that is so unleashed. And so we've been spun this lie. This lie is really a luxury of low interest rates easy money. When there's no cost of capital, you know, you can indulge in any in all manner of delusions. And so we've allowed this fantasy to be rolled out, much to the diminishment of many economies in the West and Germany and Europe in particular. But frankly, much to the benefit of the developing world, the global South is more than happy to take the discarded fossil fuels that the West refuses to burn, and they'll go right ahead and burn them. And ironically, they tend to do so in a way that is more damaging to the environment than if we had just left well enough alone. Well, you know, the thing that strikes me in my own state of California is a good example. We're going to phase out diesel by 2030, gasoline engines by 2035. In my research on uh, this energy transition, the Princeton report came out and said that we would need to hit the emission goals by 2030. We would need to be selling 
almost 3 million EVs a year, three times as many as were sold in a record-breaking year in 2022. And by 2050, we're going to need like 200 and I forget what the figure is. It's like 250 million EVs. Doomberg, in my own state, I was predicting that we were going to get to $90 oil and we'd be at $7 gasoline, which is where we are. I got myself an EV because it's getting so expensive here, but I have solar panel. So I provide my own power, but it's almost as expensive, if not more, to charge an EV. And I happen to know this last summer, they had to bring in large containers for battery backup so we could avoid brownouts because obviously the governor has political ambitions and brownouts don't go very well with the population. But how are we going to make this transition in EVs? Because they're sitting on dealer lots. They're more expensive. Well, beyond that, there's no real capacity to charge them. The grid investments have not been made. We both know that central planning doesn't work, right? And so it is one thing to imagine scenarios that you're modeling on a spreadsheet, and it's an entirely different thing to mandate their implementation in the real economy, where people have the capacity to make their own decisions and capital goes where capital is respected and the magic hand of the market and the signaling that it does up and down value chains inevitably you know, asserts itself. And so you're right that your governor does have political ambitions, but we're just in the very early innings of this transition. Now copy and paste this five times over and ban internal combustion engines, ban the installation of natural gas furnaces and cooktops in homes and mandate that everybody charge their cars, heat and cool their homes on the grid, which by the way, with very minimal penetration of these technologies is already teetering on the edge of instability. And as we both know, it doesn't take but one, two, three percent grid unreliability to destroy 20, 40, 60 percent of the grid's value because nobody will tolerate you know, rolling brownouts from a manufacturing perspective because this just-in-time supply chain network necessarily makes any factories located in such regions instantly uncompetitive. And the problem is only going to get worse, ironically, with the development of AI. You know, we've been researching a piece we've not yet written about power-hungry data centers and how the U.S. dominates in this regard and how the development of ChatGPT and deployment of those tools widely across society is going to be, at the same time, a technological innovation boom, but a huge drain on the grids. And we actually think, ironically, that the necessity to to feed that power, which will be driven by huge value-added applications and the technology sector is, is very, very powerful from a lobbying perspective. We believe that the uh, inevitable need for ever more computing power will be the backdoor way in which SMR technology, nuclear technology becomes acceptable once again, because all roads need to lead to nuclear, as we have discussed in my prior appearances on your show. Yeah, it's amazing because in my research, I think it was 1992, we had 112 nuclear power plants. We're down to 92. Everybody else is building them and we're shutting ours down. We have one more plant here in California, Diablo Canyon, which is scheduled to be shut down by 2030. So there's going to be another 10% of our electricity grid. We're going to lose the power. And ironically, Doomberg, we're buying excess power from nuclear power plants in Arizona. Yeah. So I would say I would take the over on Diablo Canyon's life from here. And I would also give your listeners a milestone to look for. So the Palisades nuclear power plant in Michigan, which was shut down recently, is about to be efforts to restart it are about to take hold. And um, the new owner of the facility has recently submitted an application with the NRC to begin the process of reopening Palisades here in Michigan, which would be a very big deal. And I think the milestone to watch is how does the NRC handle that application? Because as we have written and others have pointed out, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the U.S. is the thing that is constraining the deployment and development of nuclear power across the country and how they handle the Palisades nuclear 
restart ambitions, I think will be very telling. I think Diablo Canyon will still be operable and producing 10% of the state's electricity and 20% of its baseload power by 2050, frankly. And it would be foolish so foolish for California to shut that plant down that I have to believe, even in California, it won't happen. And so I'm actually quite bullish. I think we've reached a turning point. I think the price of uranium is signaling as much. I think the upcoming meeting at COP28 in the United Arab Emirates is going to be a turning point where technologies like carbon capture and nuclear are going to move to the forefront of our energy policy. This will, of course, be a disaster for the Balthusian environmentalists who are deeply interested in cutting our total energy use, but will be a rather sane reassertion of power by the soft left, soft right majority in the middle that would like to do the minimum amount of damage to the planet while maintaining our standards of living. And, and I think that's just a winning platform. And I think the alternative view that we need to take giant leaps backward in our standard of living for something as nebulous as nature, uh, it's just not winning. It's not going to happen. And so that which can't go on forever usually doesn't. Our playing footsie with these uh, extreme radicals is truly a luxury of excess energy from the shale patch and, and zero interest rates because of Fed easing. Both of those seem to be turning. And with it, unsurprisingly, we'll go our foray into uh, intermittent weather-dependent renewables like wind and solar. You know, I go along with that because I think there's going to be a backlash to, I call them the banana greens, build absolutely nothing anytime near anybody because they're for green, but green takes minerals, almost six times the amount of minerals. And to have minerals, you have to mine them. What does that imply? You have to have diesel fuel. So you need more diesel to run the big mining equipment from crushers to loaders to everything that goes along with mining. But also you need the raw materials. And Doomberg, you know, anytime you try to open up a mine here, we shut them down. We don't allow them. Forget about it. Look, they're not actually for those technologies. They're opposed to fossil fuels and they need something to point to, to make it plausible. That's our view. Honestly, after having studied these people as long as we have and pondered what could be motivating them deep down, if you press them, they're deeply opposed to population growth. And their biggest fear is that the global South emerges into what we would consider the middle class, because in their view, their short-sighted view, which is, I think, unnecessarily bearish the human innovative potential, they would view the ascension of the global South into the middle class as a serious threat to nature. In other words, it's not just energy. If we were to provide an abundance of life-nourishing energy to those 5 billion people in the global South, that would necessarily mean that they would be interested in all the other resources that the world is, quote unquote, struggling to provide, food, minerals, and so on. And so in their view, they have to backdoor into sort of tricking us into not doing fossil fuels anymore. But they know, I think, deep down that not the people that are just superficially for these things, but the true core Malthusian leaders of the modern and professional environmental movement are deeply opposed to nuclear energy, for example, precisely because it provides carbon-free, life-nourishing power to the masses. They would like to have less masses but they can't run on that politically. And when we point this out, of course, we generally tend to annoy some people who haven't done the proper reading on the history of all of these organizations. But if you're unaware of this history, you've been fooled by propagandists whose desire is to have less humans. And I think they should be called out for that. I think we should put that out there. It's, you know, would you like to have less humans on the planet? And then of course, our final answer to such people is you first. If you think there's too many people, lead by example. And another issue, too, is this kind of people think green energy is clean. They have no idea of the amount of pollution. I'm thinking of Guillaume Patron in his book, The Resource Wars. Basically, if you take rare earths, I can't think of the city in China where they have high incidences of cancer to produce these rare earth minerals. 
People don't understand how dirty some of these mining locations are. They're actually creating more carbon emissions and more pollution. Well, beyond that, there's a geopolitical component. And as we've written on several occasions, China is willing to do the dirty work that our nimbyism culture in the West refuses to do, which means they eventually, because they're willing to pollute and so on, gain monopoly control over these key choke points like processing of rare earth metals. So we have a mine in the US that we've written about that produces concentrate of rare earth metals that are needed for the wind turbine gearboxes and so on and electric motors and all of the things that are necessary to catalyze the so-called green energy transition. China has a chokehold on the processing of those. And, and what I mean by that is in the conversion of those concentrates into pure metals, that's a very, very dirty process. It, it produces an enormous amount of waste. And having personally competed against Chinese companies when I was in industry, I can assure you that when your competitor's idea of a water treatment facility is a pipeline to the river, you have no hope of beating them on cost. And I like to tell the story of how I approached a very famous you know, B2C brand that you would recognize, and I won't name them here, when China was taking over the solar market. And China was offering products in the solar space at costs that were inconceivable to Western producers because the Western producers were held accountable for what they did with their waste and how they treated their employees and all of the sort of the union-driven sort of pro-labor type policies that we have in the West, by the way, which I would support. And so when we told this B2C customer who was making a big deal about their uh, installation of various solar panels that you do realize that our Chinese competitors who have offered you this low price stole our technology and are using dirty thermal coal and slave labor to undercut us on price, that this is basically unfair practice and you're greenwashing. You're putting Western producers of this technology out of business while leveraging the worst aspects of the Chinese production process. And their answer to me and to our team at the time was that's for the courts to decide. You know, if they're polluting, that's not on us to understand. And if they stole your intellectual property, sue them. Right now, I have this response to a request for a proposal that is um, 35% cheaper than what you're offering. And I'm going with that unless you could meet the price. And of course, we couldn't meet the price. And we went out of business. This happened across the entire industry. And now China controls, monopolizes 95 to 100% of all of the polysilicon wignet manufacturing and wafering and cell production in the world. And so every single solar panel in California today is tainted by slave labor. It just is. We allowed China to do this. And the worst part of all of this, Jim, is, is people pretended as though this was some descent down a technological S-curve of innovation that drove these low costs. It, nothing could be further than the truth. I lived it. It's total nonsense and hypocrisy on the highest order. It's unsustainable. And in the end, physics will reassert itself as we're seeing, especially, for example, in the wind industry. It's really remarkable to watch unfold exactly as we had predicted. You know, it's amazing because I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal where the wind industry is wanting more tax credits. They want more financing. And, you know, we heard that the cost of green was coming down, but you just hit about uh, one thing. The cost of green came down in the last decade due to two things, cheap, low interest rates, and cheap energy. We don't have those two anymore. And so what are you seeing? You're seeing the cost escalate. And the other thing too, there's a new documentary. I can't recall if it's out now or coming out. It's about what offshore wind does to the whale population. It's killing a lot of the whales. So yeah, we wrote about this in a piece called Windbaggery. And in fact, the documentary you refer to has been published by Michael Schellenberger and the team at Public. And we referenced that in our piece. And the real scandal there is the, the government's overt cover-up of the fact that 
all of this pounding of these, you know, concrete and steel materials into the ocean floor is generating all of this massive noise pollution, which is frankly killing endangered whales. All along the U.S. East Coast and the Atlantic Coast, we're seeing all of these whales that beach themselves. But that's bad enough. But the, the real scandal is why would the NOAA proactively go out of their way to lie about it and to say that this has nothing to do with the wind industry. And if you watch that documentary and you see the direct correlation between the activity for offshore wind and these whales, you know, uh, beaching themselves, you can't but come away angry and disgusted. Like the hypocrisy of it all is just really crazy. And in fact, in, in Windbaggery, we iterated our prediction that offshore wind is dead. Like there will not be any offshore wind installed uh, along the east coast of the U.S., let alone 30 gigawatts, as the Biden administration is still pretending to fantasize will happen before 2030. This industry is in serious trouble. And frankly, you know, solar makes way more sense than wind. And that should tell you what we think of wind. You know, as you look at this, too, it's not just that. It's the amount of raw materials, as we talked. And, you know, everybody's excited about AI. You've seen that in the Magnificent Seven in the stock market. But as you pointed out, the amount of energy, the amount of computer chips that's going to be required by AI and the amount of energy it's going to take to power it. People don't put two and two together. Oh, gee, I like my cell phone. I like AI. I like my iWatch, my iPad, all this high-tech stuff. It takes raw materials and takes energy. Well, absolutely it does. But I mean, on the flip side, to spin it more positively, the inventions needed to get us out of whatever environmental challenges our burning of fossil fuels may present will only be accelerated by the deployment and wide proliferation of AI technologies. When my good friend Nate Higgins, who I respect deeply, you know, is a very deep thinker on the energy topics, talks about what he calls the carbon pulse, which is the rate at which we're extracting carbon energy out of the ground is far, 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 far faster than nature put it there in the first place. My counter would be we're also experiencing an enormous technology pulse where the rate of technical innovation, you know, to, to sort of to borrow from Ray Kurzweil and the singular is near type mindset is really staggering. And when you plot, for example, on a log scale, the world's fastest supercomputer, you can see that the predictions of Kurzweil back in the mid 2000s have really come home. And when you empower, you know, billions of people with AI enhancement for their innovative endeavors, the technical singularity that explodes is gives me great hope. And I think, you know, we will be able to solve these issues, to overcome these constraints, to adapt to whatever harm our presence on this planet may be causing to humans. And so, you know, as much as it's easy to sort of cherry pick and point out the fallacies of various policies, I think if you take a step back 100 years from now, AI is going to be way more remembered by the historians than wind and solar. So as you take a look at this and where we're going, where are we seeing countries kind of back away from this, what I call plan controlled economy? We're going to do this in 10 years. Obviously, that's not going to happen. So do you believe that we are now at that turning point that countries are waking up and saying, you know what? I don't like brownouts. I don't like $7 gasoline or $8 gasoline. And I like dependable energy. I don't like it when it goes out and my refrigerator doesn't work. Yeah, of course. And that's the, the exact point we were making in, in the great backpedalings upon us. We see it in the UK. Frankly, we saw it last year with Biden when oil spiked to 130. What did he do? Did he cheer that on saying, good, we need oil to be expensive because we need to be burning less of it? No. He released a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in an overt attempt to 
manage down the price of gasoline ahead of the election. Well, what does that mean when you manage down the price of gasoline? It means you manage up the demand for gasoline. That was the first retreat, really, if you think about it. And now we're seeing the UK backpedal. We're seeing the entire global South just ignore what the Germans and the Europeans and the environmental left in the US are preaching to them. You know, I do think, and we've written this on several occasions, like the, the great energy crisis of last winter, the worst parts of it may have been circumvented by Germany's retreat to the coal mine, but it's retreat to the coal mine and it's half a trillion dollars in you know fiscal stimulus to offset the cost of energy for its population. Those two decisions had lasting impacts on the rest of the world. The 5 billion people in the global South who have the benefit of harvesting one-fifth of the energy of the average G7 citizen, looked at that and said, okay, we know what the real story is. When push comes to shove, they don't want to make any sacrifices. So why should we? And they won't. And who are we to tell them that they should? Do you think this will become more of a political issue going forward? Because, you know, you turn on the evening news and I forget who in the administration, given the events over the weekend, are coming out and saying, well, the number one threat is still climate change. That was Biden himself. He put climate change ahead of the threat of nuclear war, which seems a bit foolish given the the events of the past week. I mean, in the end, people could look out the window and experience the weather. I mean, I don't know about you, but my summer has been pretty typical for all of the hyperventilation about boiling the oceans and so on. People just won't buy it. And for sure, they won't sacrifice anything to do anything about it. So let's just recognize that and get about the task of implementing serious policies that consider the trade-offs involved. And the ratio to be optimized is really the standard of living of all humans divided by our impact on the environment. There are two parts to that equation. How do we increase the numerator and decrease the denominator? And right now we are focused exclusively on decreasing the denominator at the expense of the numerator, which is just a losing political proposition. So in fact, the harder they push, the harder the pushback. So look at Europe. What do we see? Luxembourg, Conservative Party wins. Germany, local elections. AFD scores second highest in the polls in Western Germany, by the way, which is outside of their traditional strength in Eastern Germany. Huge election coming up in Poland on Sunday. Of course, that has more to do with the personalities involved, perhaps. Slovakia just elected pretty conservative. We're seeing this reactionary rightward tilt in politics in Europe. And Biden tried to get ahead of that last year by draining the Strategic Petroleum Reserve wisely, I guess you could say, um, from a purely political perspective. And so, yeah, of course, the politics will eventually catch up to reality on the ground. Yeah, I'm just looking at my Bloomberg and I'm taking a look at crude oil stocks at Cushing, which is where oil is stored for futures contracts. I'm looking at U.S. distillates, diesel and heating oil below average. I'm also looking at a downward trend in crude oil stocks. So we're bullish on commodities. What's your view about commodity investment in this decade, given what we've seen? Our view is that if you're going to allocate a significant portion of your portfolio towards commodities, you should at least be pondering how to allocate a portion of that via the private markets, because the public markets have just refused to value the cash flows and the assets of those companies in a reasonable way. Now, to those who are restricted to public market investing, that would be be sort of an opportunity, but that opportunity has been there for the better part of the past 10 to 15 years. And I can tell you from personal experience that if you can get some private market deal flow where the management team is solid and committed to remunerating shareholders via dividends, you don't have to worry about valuation and multiples and so on. Because even today, still, despite all of this, the, the public market value of the companies that are critical to providing the commodities that we either need today or in fact need to catalyze the so-called green energy transition are selling at horribly depressed multiples. Nobody wants to own them. Many passive funds are forbidden from owning them and you're just not going to get that multiple lift over time. And so we are, of course, very bullish commodities because we're bullish life and commodities feed 
our lives. But we have chosen to express that view in the private markets for our own personal reasons. All right. Well, listen, Doomberg, as we close, why don't you tell our listeners about the newsletter you put out? And once again, congratulations on one of the fastest growing newsletters on Substack. Yeah, I really appreciate it. We were the number one paid finance Substack in the world, which every time I say it, I force myself to pinch myself. It's kind of surreal to think that we created this blog out of nothing but our own ambition and hard work. But that, of course, is sort of the American dream, really, if you think about it. And so, yeah, you can find all of our work at doomberg.substack.com. We try to publish between six and eight well-researched and tightly edited pieces every month. Our objective is to be provocative without being polarizing and to be funny without being silly and to teach without being self-indulgent. And hopefully every piece meets those three brand ambitions. And look, always great to come back on with you, Jim, and looking forward to the next one. All right. You take care and be well. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-488-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and click where it says Contact Us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense News Hour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the News Hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.